there's a song by the Black Crows. She talks to angels and one of the lines in there talks about, she never mentions the word addiction in certain company. And she'll tell you she's an orphan after you meet her family. Now we're gonna talk about Jesus today, but I think y'all are good company. Y'all the right kind of company. Can we talk about addiction a little bit? And talk about some grown folk things. I know we got the kids coming in the next hour. Let me go ahead and pray and ask for God's help. Dear Lord, thank you that you're here with us in the midst of us. And Father, I pray that you're, you'll open my mouth so that I, I can declare your praise and that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Father, that you'd send your Holy Spirit to set your word on fire, God, and set our hearts on fire with more love for Jesus, God, and drive out the love for the world and, and the lesser things. And God, let us be ready to receive and welcome all that Jesus wants to do here because we're Jesus's people and it's Jesus's church and it's Jesus's kingdom and we've been bought with Jesus's blood. So we just pray, God, for more of your kingdom to come and more of your will to be done in us and through us, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. So we can't talk about addiction without also talking about the profound pain that often tags along behind it. We may wonder why God hasn't fixed our problem or why he hasn't cured the person who in their addiction is bringing so much pain in our lives. Sometimes we might pray hard for them to be saved just to bring the pain and comfort out of our own life, not really wanting them to be saved for the glory and good of God. Maybe that person is you today. Maybe that is a loved one. I don't presume to pry into the mysteries of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and when those two converge. I believe that there is a point and a place in which they do, but I trust one of my professors in seminary who wisely stated, it's hidden somewhere in the clouds of God's purpose and he hasn't revealed it to us yet and I'm not sure that he ever will. But I do know this, that Jesus, the Jesus revealed in the Bible, the crucified and risen Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Mary, the son of David, he's not indifferent to our suffering, to your suffering, that Jesus entered fully into the human experience and all his glory and garbage so that he can relate and emphasize with us in the lowest and the highest points of it. And then if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with us to the Gospel of John in the 11th chapter. And we'll start in verse 32 of the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And here in John chapter 11, verse 32, in the city of Bethany, we see Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha, along with extended family and friends, and they're grieving, as many of us have grieved in the years past, and with the pandemic of COVID, or even in the forgotten pandemic of, of drug overdose deaths, right? And they're thick in the midst of grief at the passing and the death of their beloved brother, Lazarus. And they're grieving in keeping with with the Jewish burial customs of the day. And that's when we read, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, Yeshua, 
she fell at his feet and said, Lord, Adonai, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we may wonder, like Mary, where Jesus was when we experienced the sudden loss of a loved one, or as we endure years of watching them waste away in the throes of addiction, or when we hear of horrific evil such as taking place across our country this past week. We may question why Jesus didn't show up sooner, but we don't have to question what he feels about the encroaches of death and destruction in this world. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 11, verse 33, where we read, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, and he saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Now, the version I'm preaching from today is, is the New Living Translation. I like it because it's easy to understand. You may have an alternate version which handles this verse a little differently, saying Jesus was deeply moved. The commentators and the translators are split between both interpretations here. But either way, we can know this, that Jesus is not stuck in the stained glass, right? That he's not a static image or an icon unmoved by the current crises. Jesus is deeply moved to respond. And that response is likely impassioned with the righteous indignation over the current state of affairs. We could ask this question, what could have caused Jesus' anger or deeply stirred emotions? Could it be that observing and sharing in the grief and sadness of the moment, having seen the tears in Mary's eyes, and even now as he sees tears in the mothers of the slain children in Uvalde, or the devastation of an individual shattered by sexual assault, or the grief shared by a family torn apart, watching a loved one cycle in and out of addiction, and all these very sad and very real and very present human crises, there's Jesus, and he's not unmoved. He's stirred deeply and touched. And in all those crises left unsaid, Jesus meets us in them and gets back behind the cause of the crisis to the ultimate cause, the fracture between God and man in sin and the rebellious acts and perversion of Satan. If Jesus at Lazarus's tomb is fighting mad, it may just be because he's face to face with the works of the devil on display in sickness and death. And if we'll go down to John chapter 11, verse 38, we see that Jesus is still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. So Jesus is not presenting here as a flippant or fleeting emotional response to human suffering, much less to its underlining causes. In another place, John records Jesus flipping over the tables of money-hungry peddlers in the sacred temple precincts, accompanying the court of the Gentiles, and giving this commentary in John chapter 2, verse 17. Then Jesus' disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, that passion or zeal for God's house will consume me. It's not just that Jesus lost his temper one day, like some of us are prone to do. A true confession, I'm getting better by God's grace, right? I, I've been listening again to, 
to the Bible in a Year podcast with, with Nikki and, and his wife, pick a gumbo. And something similar happens when King Nahash of the Ammonites. Now that's quite an, how would you like to have a king whose name means serpent? You know he's up to no good, right? So old King Nahash of the Ammonites, he besieged the people in Jabesh Gilead and he offers them brutal terms of surrender. He said, y'all want to surrender? You got to cut out one of your eyes. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's pretty brutal, right? And here's King Saul, right? It's his first, it's his first foray as king, his, his first attempt to lead the people of God. And when he hears about it, this is what the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. The Spirit of God, the, the Ruach Elohim, it came powerfully upon Saul. And what happened? He became very angry. He became very angry. I think you're seeing the pattern here of righteous indignation that is stirring up in the face of grave evil and oppression. And so Saul mustered the troops of Israel and led a great victory for the people of God after that. We may see that there's a sense in which righteous anger moves us from apathy from this, I just don't care. There's too many problems out there. I just got to take care of me. Righteous anger moves us from apathy to action. But in today's volatile political climate, we need to clarify what kind of action scripture is advocating here. It's not to the kind of action that promotes violence against neighbor or to those who disagree with us, right? But it's action against the forces that oppose human flourishing and God's good design as revealed in scripture. The climax of this kind of action moved by righteous indignation is, is shown in Jesus's settled opposition to the onslaught of evil as seen in the approach of death, what the Bible calls our last enemy. And it leads Jesus to the cross to win a decisive victory on behalf of all who repent and leave in, in believing allegiance to him. So contrary to popular opinion, this, as displayed in Jesus on the cross, is how righteous indignation ought to be worked out on behalf of the vulnerable, right? In Jesus, the righteous one, he endures slander, suffering and death at the hand of his enemies, so that by his unjust death, the hostile powers and principalities arrayed against us might be deposed and deprived of power to hold back the destiny and dignity of every human being who will trust in the risen Jewish Messiah and follow Jesus's example. But we can also see how Jesus weeps with those who weep. In John chapter 11, verse 35, it's every teenager's um, but it's a favorite Bible verse to memorize. Why? Because it's the shortest one, right? What is it? You guys ought to know this. John eleven thirty five. 35. You get extra one stars for this one, don't you? <laughs> then Jesus wept. There's, there's a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. He, 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 he brings out nuance of this verse saying, saying, Jesus broke into tears is a valid way to understand what the Greek text is saying, that, that our Savior broke into tears at the burial site of Lazarus. 
I believe that today still, the Jesus who's the same yesterday, today, and even forever, he weeps at the graves of the 100,306 people who died in the 12-month period from April 2020 to 2021 to drug overdose deaths in America, where about 70% of those deaths are attributed to, to fentanyl-related causing including fentanyl lace, cocaine, meth, and marijuana. So right here in Tennessee, 3,000 people died from drug overdose deaths in a 12-month period. If we think about it, that's eight people a day in this state, 274 every day in the nation, and the next day, and the next day for 365 days, right? It adds up to the entire population of Roanoke, Virginia, gone. And Jesus breaks into tears over the loss of every one of them. They're not nameless or accidental. Each one has a name, a family that they leave behind. Addiction and accidental overdose are no respecter of persons. No one is immune to this, right? Right here in Nashville, it could be the son of a mayor. It could be the son of a well-known Christian music artist. In Ashland City, it could be the son of a pastor. And 3,000 other sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, nephews and cousins, gone to the forgotten pandemic of drug overdose. Over the loss of everyone, I believe that Jesus broke into tears alongside the family of those surviving and that he still weeps with them, that he's not indifferent to human suffering, that Jesus weeps over the soul-crushing and diminishing of human life and liberty from drug and alcohol addiction. And I would ask that the next time we drive by one of our many homeless persons in, in Nashville, many of whom also suffer from substance abuse disorder, that we would think about how Jesus longs for them to come into the full dignity and destiny he created them for. And how every one of us from the womb to the tomb and every stage and age in between is created in the image of God. And no one can stamp that out from us. That no matter what's been done to us or what we've done, we all still bear the image of God. And John Calvin, in a section of of his longer work, Institutes on the Christian Life, he has this little nugget. He says, we must be sure not to dwell on the wickedness of men. Because there's a lot of things we could think about men like, oh, that's messed up, right? Don't get, don't get sidetracked on that. Rather consider the image of God, the Imago Dei in them. Because that image, concealing and obliterating their shortcomings, entices us by its beauty and dignity to love and welcome them. Here's something else to take away, that Jesus makes some people uncomfortable. Y'all know that, right? There's nothing more divisive than mentioning the name of Jesus in a room of people. Talk about God, they'll let that pass. Talk about a bunch of other things, but mention Jesus and people start to get uncomfortable. I've seen this in NA meetings. For those of you who are not familiar with NA, NA is, is a 12-step fellowship. Narcotics Anonymous. And you can talk about God and your higher power. But when I mention the name of Jesus, people would try to cough me out and let me know that that wasn't welcome there. 
And that was pretty much expected. But, but when I attended Christ-centered recovery groups and people would sit around and talk about how much fun it was to, to, to flip over Jeeps again and again and to go out on, on sprees getting drunk. And when, when the topic of that day was to share our thoughts on God, there was a, a brother who was just sharing about how in the midst of all that, he just felt like God was smiling and happy with him. Well, I started to share with them about the two ways to live, about how God is a loving and ruler and sovereign creator of this world, and how he created human beings in his image to rule and to reign under him, but how every one of us in willful pride has rejected God as our ruler and tried to make a go at it our own way. And we've made a mess of our own lives as we're honest about it. We made a less of our communities in the world if we look around us, and God's not going to allow that rebellion to go on forever. There's two ways to live. Right? We're going to live God's way. And then I started sharing the speaker, and he starts looking at his watch. He's like, Time's up, bud. He's like, Well, I thought we we're in Baptist church over here. But when you start talking about Jesus, right, the sinless Son of God who laid down his life for us, who showed us the example, people start to get uncomfortable. This is how John puts it in verse 39 of, of chapter 11. Jesus tells the crowd, roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Now, I like how they put it in the old authorized version. Lord, he stinketh. Now, now here's Martha. Isn't she so practical, so reasonable, so, so religious in her hesitation and resistance to what Jesus is about to do? And I wonder, no, it wouldn't be anybody in here, but in some churches, some people might be stuck in a Martha mentality, a religious spirit that's resistant to Jesus, upsetting the status quo. There's a pastor up in New York Brooklyn Tabernacle, Pastor Jim Cimbala, and he tells the story of an Easter Sunday, and he had preached it good. And he sat down at the end of the service. People were coming forward, and he was just worn out. And he looks down in the center aisle, and here comes the old guy, because they get all kind of people coming to the church, homeless people, and just people on the streets coming in. People come in, ask for money. And their, their general policy was they don't do that. We'll, we'll take you out and get you a meal. But he's just so tired, he kind of reaches in his pocket. He's like, let's just be done with the thing. I'm going to give this guy some money. He comes up. He says he looks like he's about 50. And he's missing a bunch of his teeth. And his hair's all messed up. And his clothes aren't good. And he tries to hand him some money. And the guy pushes, he pushes the money back to Pastor Simbala and says, no, I don't want the money. I want this Jesus you're preaching. Because I know that I'm not going to make it. I slept in an abandoned truck last night. I've been on the street for six years. Pastor Simbala started to get convicted. He started to weep on the conviction of the Holy Spirit for not having time for this man. He started to realize and repent that he wasn't seeing this individual in the image of God who had created him. He wasn't feeling the love of God for him. And they start to weep and hug on each other. And that's when he gets... He gets an insight from the Lord that that smell, that the man had a stench, that every time he wanted to breathe, pastor had to turn away so he could, he could take a breath and, and, not, and not breathe in the odor that was coming off of this man. And that's when he realizes that that, that smell, that if you, don't, if you can't live and operate in that smell, 
then you're not going to have any business in this ministry for these people because that's what God had called them to. There is a smell when Jesus is working. And if we're so religious and uptight and practical about some things, we might miss out on a mighty thing that God is doing in our midst. But I'm just preaching to the choir on that. Now here's the thing. There's another Lazarus. Emma Lazarus. And she wrote the sonnet which appears on a bronze plaque on the base of the Statue of Liberty up in New York. The New Colossus. And the final lines read, Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What a vision for the land of the free and the home of the brave. What if the church of the living God reclaimed that scriptural vision for itself? I remember Pastor Jeff has shared that Judson is praying and believing for God to bring in a hundred new members this year. And we believe he will. But what if the people he brings aren't the ones that you and I had in mind, but the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses yearning to breathe free? My prayer for a recovery church is God send us the people nobody else wants because I know you want them. Because Jesus put his stamp of approval on him when he hung on that cross. And he said, whosoever wills, whosoever comes to me, I shall not cast out. He paid the ultimate price for them. And after all, it's his church. I wonder if some of our hesitancy to welcome and receive more of God's kingdom is rooted in unbelief. On the heels of Martha's practical objection, Lord, he stinketh. Then we see Jesus' gentle rebuke in verse 40, where Jesus responded, didn't I tell you? Now, parent, when I saw that as a parent, I was like, I can use that. Didn't I tell you? But watch out now, you can overuse it too. He said, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So here's the question, folks. Do we still believe? It's not about living in denial or sticking our hands in the proverbial sand and wishing all the bad stuff goes away, right? This is about holding on faith for that family member and addiction for decades and not writing them off. That in spite of it all, do we still believe that what God said he would do, he would do, Right In the midst of the present constellation of local, national, and global crises, do you still believe that you will see the glory of God? When Charles Dickens wrote that it was the best of times and the worst of times, those are not mutually exclusive categories, right? That when evil is at its worst then we know that the power and the grace of God is available to his people, that he's moving us into position to humble ourselves and to seek his face and to get ready for the greatest outpouring of his spirit that we have ever seen. This is how the Bible talks about keeping the faith to see God's greater glory, right? That we know that all glory goes to God who is able through through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. 
All glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, the last time I checked, our Lord Jesus still holds the keys of death and hell and the winds and the waves still know his name. Look how he commands Lazarus to come forth. And folks, I'm glad that Jesus is still name calling. He's not calling us those names that kids used to tease us with at school. He's calling our names to get up at that grave and come to life in him. It's not just to bring us back to, to this temporary mortal life, but to receive a whole new kind of life that starts now and lasts forever. And this is where I'm reminded that all things are from him and through him and to him. And apart from him, we can do nothing. If Jesus isn't calling people to himself out of the darkness, then folks, when, when, we're, when we're doing church, it's just like, it's just like we're at weekend at Bernie's and we're wondering why dead people around us aren't acting like Christians because they don't got the life of God in them. Right? This is our part. Our part is to pray that Jesus, the risen Messiah, calls people out of the grave and then to respond in obedience to him, to what he tells us to do, to help them along in that process. We can't bring anybody out of the grave, no matter how much we want them to, how much we, we pry them to. It's going to take a miracle of God to bring a life into that human soul. Because change happens from the inside out when the life of God comes into a man or woman or a child's heart and sets up his glorious throne there. Now, now, most mornings I can't get my kids out of bed. And if I'm honest, most days it's hard to get me out of bed. But, but look at Jesus. He's getting Lazarus up out the grave. That's something to be impressed about, right? He's really got something there. And notice he even had to specify who he's calling. John put earlier in chapter five, he's talking about how Jesus is the long-awaited son of God. He says, I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the son of God and those who listen will live. The father has life in himself and has granted the same life-given power to the son. He says, don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's son and they will rise again. And then there'll be a judgment of eternal life. Those who've continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. And those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. So Jesus, right? He knows that as a son of man, he has authority one day to call all of us up by name and to stand before him. But here in this instance, in Bethany, he only calls one man up. He calls him by name. So as not to get a head start, a jump start on the mass resurrection that is coming and it's due time. But we don't want to miss our part. Jesus gave, he gave marching orders to his church. In verse 39, he tells them, roll the stone aside. What might that look like for us as Jesus' followers today? Well, it might look like removing the obstacles that might hinder people from encountering Jesus and his word. It's hard to admit, but sometimes my own ego and my pride and my attitude and my agenda and me and my own heart can be harder than a rock. And that could be the biggest obstacle getting in the way from someone encountering Jesus. God forbid that any one of us would get in the way of somebody encountering Jesus in his word. Why don't we just go ahead and move that rock out of the way? 
Jesus has marching orders for us. In verse 44, we see the dead man came out and his hands and his feet were bound in grave clothes. His face was wrapped in a headcloth and Jesus gave him some more instructions. Unwrap him and let him go with the implication to let him go home. In doing so, I believe Jesus invites us to join him in the miracle of the moment. You know, there's some people who don't have a home to go back to after they encounter Jesus and his word. For someone early in recovery, before they can go back home, they've got some real practical needs that they're going to need to secure a stable job, to have a reliable car, and even to get affordable housing. Try doing that in Nashville these days. And how about some mentoring on how to have godly and wise relationships and how to handle your finances. We should be asking ourselves as a church, what am I doing to untie the grave clothes of those Jesus is calling forth out of the grave? What am I doing to remove what hinders people from moving forward into all that God has called them to be? Even Jesus didn't do it all by himself. He graciously invites his followers to join in the miracle as they walk in obedience to his commands. One thing we could look at about how the church in America needs to be brought back to life as, as a credible witness. There's churches on life support because the body is on life support. We could ask, does Jesus really live in you? How would you know? Is it just a warm and fuzzy feeling? Do other people know? Can they see Christ in you? Folks, faith that's only in our heart or in our head without making its way out into our everyday life, the Bible says is dead, it's stillborn, is worthless lifeless and worth nothing. But I love how Judson Baptist Church offers many avenues to live out your faith in Jesus with tremendous opportunities. ESL ministry starting here with Wanda King. Embrace grace. Legacy Mission Village just next door to Judson. Helping Hands ministry just on the other side of Judson and another one next door that I'm kind of partial to, Recovery Church. There's also Layman Lesson Ministry, helping the homeless with, with, with Karen Johnson. You, you may be wondering, how can I partner with what God is doing at Recovery Church in Nashville? There's just a few ways I could share with you. One is to pray and to really pray. We know that there's there's power in the prayers of God's people who live right, right? One other way, you could join in the work God is doing at Recovery Church is to help provide meals once a, qu once a quarter. <laughs> Marcy Henning and her family have, have really blessed Recovery Church providing meals. And if you were interested in, in doing that, you could, uh, you could, you could contact her after one of the services. All right. You probably noticed in the Bible how many major events happen around mealtime. It's, it's really, it's, it's an interesting study if, if you look at that. Some of y'all may want to join rotation of drivers for the shuttle bus. Now, this one is really not for the faint of heart. Rob Mason, Mike Sardin, Laurie Nelson, and they even let me drive it sometimes. I got to drive this shuttle bus 
St. Pat's Day downtown when the beer kegs were going and the scantily clad ladies were out for days. And here we are cruising in the Judson Baptist Church shuttle. I was like, dear Jesus, it's a zoo out here. We got people, they got 30 days sober and all this. Good Lord, we're going to make it back to the mission. All right. You could visit us on site over there. It's like, folks, it's like a mission trip. You don't even got to wear your seat. Don't tell um, Richard I said that. You could just go over in the next parking lot. It's like a mission trip. But here's the thing. You want to come expecting God to move. It's going to move in you and the lives of people that are there. And here's the thing. When you start to hear testimonies of people every month, as we invite you to, you, you might start to hear how God has brought their story to connect with his story. And so many people in recovery have just had awful things happen along the way where we might shift the way we start to see people in recovery from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And how can I join God in the work of removing obstacles to see you go back home and flourishing in all that he has for you, right? If you do come visit with us, there's a whole ministry of hugs. Any huggers? Any huggers here? Any huggers? All right, there we go. We need ministry of sanctified touch. There's so much touch that's unsanctified and unholy, right? That if you're filled with the love of Jesus, you can reach out and share his love that way. And we also ask, share it with your friends and family who are in recovery. Uh, when you walk out the sanctuary, just a little bit later, we, we have printouts for you if you'd like to take some home. And I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have after the service. <laughs> Can I pray for us as we wrap up? All right. All right. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that your heart is full of compassion for people just like us. And Lord, none of us here want to pretend like everything is, is good or, or right as it should be in our lives or, or, in, or in the world. Lord, but we do believe that right, right in the midst of it, that right in the midst of it, God, that we can believe you for greater things, that we can believe that we will see the glory of God, that Jesus is still on the throne. He's still raising people up out of lives of sin and addiction and despondency and anxiety and depression to bring them into lives of wholeness and righteousness and holiness and purpose and peace in Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that no matter what some of us may have been called in life, that you called us by name, that you call us sons and daughters, that you call us into freedom, that you call us into righteousness and forgiveness, that you declare all things made right in our relationship with you on the basis of Jesus' shed blood. Father, we thank you for that better word that you speak over us. Lord, we thank you for the great work that you're doing in Judson Baptist Church, for the faithfulness of your people. Would you encourage us, God? Would you strengthen those who are weary? God, would you strengthen us with a hope that's laid up for us in heaven as we await the appearing of our great 
God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us as a people for his own possession. God, may you renew our zeal, our passion, our intensity, our urgency, God, our great love for the things of God and the people of God and the word of God. God, let our hearts grow ever brighter for you as we draw closer to you in that great day. Let us not grow cold or weary in well-doing, but we thank you, dear God, that you're ever faithful and ever good. We ask you, God, to pour out your blessing and your favor on your people. God, and we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, your provision for us. Would you guide us, dear God, in, in your wisdom and in your favor, and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.